0: I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. My guest today is John Pavlovitz. John is a pastor, writer, and activist from Wake Forest, North Carolina. He's spent nearly three decades teaching, studying, dissecting, deconstructing, and reconstructing the Christian faith. His new book, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk, invites us to re-examine the modern faith community and asks if it is as loving as it should be. It's almost everybody! Seems passionate about politics. I
1: can understand that. What I don't understand is why we let
0: that passion become so. President Trump, these are some of your greatest faith leaders. that would love to pray over you. Send your power and your presence to touch this president. Show him who you
1: are. Show him your love. Show him the love of the people. And Lord, do something so great in him and in this nation that the pundits on TV and the news anchors will be amazed at how great America is. I'm here because I believe every single person in the world is created with the same inherent worth. And it seems like not enough people in our government or our churches understand that. I am John Pavlovich. I am an unapologetic minister for the common good. Sorry, not sorry.
0: John, I want to talk about your book, but first I'd like to talk a bit about you. Tell us who you are and how you came to be a pastor.
1: I was born and raised in upstate New York in a very traditional Italian Roman Catholic family. So I was raised on gluten and guilt. And so for me, it was having this idea growing up that there was this massive God who made everything, knew me intimately and loved me completely, but it was a God that I was afraid of. And I grew up with that faith, with that belief system, and then got to college in Philadelphia, and had drifted from organized religion, as many people do. And But there, my world expanded. I went to art school studying graphic design and illustration. And just being around that diverse kind of population and seeing poverty up close really sort of changed the, the world for me, really expanded it. And then what happened was I started volunteering for a church. My wife and I got married at this little a Methodist church, and it was experiencing all the stuff that I thought I was supposed to experience in religion, the sort of best parts about Christianity, and started volunteering with teenagers and started to realize that I had this affinity for that very turbulent time in people's lives. You know, I called myself a demented storm chaser. I was like, that looks horrible. Let's go there. And so really, ministry was a surprise to me. It was not anything that I aspired to or dreamed of, and here, almost thirty years later, my road is meandered, but largely through the organized church.
0: Faith has such a complicated place in American history. Colonizers came here from Europe to allow free practice of their faith, but the framers also distinctly separated church and state. How do we how do we get to this place where faith and politics are so intertwined? Especially on the right.
1: That was the learning for me. You know, as so I got about seven years in the ministry, the churches got larger, uh, my profile got higher, and I began to s- sort of sense there was this tension in me between the person I was becoming and the pastor that I was expected to be—the party line and the theology and the system that I realized that I was part of. And so, once I started leaning into those better stories about people. The more I thought about diverse populations, the more I saw how fractured the church was and how toxic it was. And so for me, there was this uh, increasing tension that for me, Meant that um, I had to decide if I was going to be an authentic pastor or an employed one. In some ways, and being here in the South, I just started speaking more explicitly into that, into the experience of racism in the church and homophobia. We should respond directly to something that Rudy Giuliani said. So he said, oh. "We don't have anybody pushing for them to die." That's not the true. Uh, that's not true, as you'll see in this video. Hey everybody, Pastor Steven Anderson here from Faithful Word Baptist Church in Tempe, Arizona. And I just wanted to record a quick video about the news this morning about the shooting in Orlando. I guess a a Muslim terrorist went into a gay bar and shot him up. And um, there's 50 uh, sodomites, homosexuals, that have been killed. The good news is that there's 50 less pedophiles in this world. Because, you know, these homosexuals are a bunch of disgusting perverts and pedophiles. That's who was a victim here are a bunch of just disgusting homosexuals at a gay bar. And I think we got this way because people on the right, they got comfortable with the idea of owning faith as an idea. And I think the left liberals, we began to be afraid of asserting our faith perspective because of that toxic movement, not wanting to be associated with it. So as a result, I think progressives and liberals, we began to be quieter about our, religious convictions. And because of that, we yielded the floor.
0: Right. And it's also the word patriotism. It's that same thing. And also symbols of patriotism. You know, the American flag. I feel like the right, the extreme right, has hijacked a lot of our symbolism or the good things about faith, because there are so many important lessons having two kids of, of my own, being raised Catholic. I was married in an Episcopalian church. I believe in teaching faith to younger generations. It just It's so amazing to see the trajectory from when I was little and used to sit in a church and learn about God and figure out w- what that meant to me. Actually, would you— define God for our listeners as you see God?
1: For me, there is just this idea that there is this love that holds this all together. And I can't quantify it, and I can't define it. The, the book that I've written was originally called Unboxing God, because for me, there's this sense that I have that there is this beauty that is that holds everything together. But for me, The idea of of God was something that I saw people commandeering for their own use, and it was weaponized. And I think if you're an honest person of faith, and I try to be as honest as I can, I'm sort of always fighting with and for my faith tradition. I've seen the beautiful expressions of it. I know the, the goodness at the heart of some of it, but I've also seen the damage. I've seen the toxicity, and so I'm always trying to live in that place of identifying the horrible, but yet letting people know, but there is this beautiful side to spirituality. And, you know, that's really the heart of this book. It's that, you know, f- faith should make you a more empathetic person. And if it doesn't, well, what's the point of it? And so, yeah, God to me is that thing, that that commonality that all people feel, there is a spark of that. And that is what, for me, God gets defined as.
0: I want to talk about your book. First of all, the title is incredible. If God is love don't Be a Jerk. I love that title so much. Tell us a bit about the title, but also why you wrote the book.
1: The book was originally, I started writing this book in March of 2020 and literally the weekend that everything started to hit the fan here. And originally it was going to be a distanced look, a diagnosis of toxic religion. But when I started to look around at what was happening, not only with the pandemic, but with the coming election. And when I started to look at the, the resistance to the Black Lives Matter protests and all this Different stuff was happening, and then January 6th happened. It was looking around and seeing that all of this damage and all of this hatred was seemingly coming from professed Christians who were white. Walking out of federal court in Orlando Thursday, 72 year old James Kusick and his 35 year old son, Casey. According to the family's website, they're ministers of Go Ministries, listing the address of their church at this Melbourne residence shielded from the road by trees and a gate. Reaching the gates of the United States Capitol, the FBI says the Cusics and a third member of their church entered the building on January 6th. And so I started to realize I couldn't ignore what was happening in the world. So this became a real time sort of diary of me looking at the world, engaging with it, and trying to make some sense of it. And the heart of the title is really that. I think it's because my aspirations for humanity have gotten a little bit more pedestrian. So it's, okay, we'll work on love and compassion later, but let's just not harm. Can we have a Christianity out there that does not seek to do damage? And that's why I think you see so much this predatory, exclusionary religion. And as a, a white Christian, I wanted to speak into that directly and explicitly.
0: It's really, they've weaponized religion for a a political ideology that is completely made up. And it's a shame because I don't know where we go from here. And mind you, there is enough going on in the Catholic Church to give religion a bad name without just what's going on with how the extreme right has uh, weaponized religion. And, and it does feel like it feels like people are stuck in a in a in a cult almost. Oh, without question. And you open the book with a story about being trapped in a pair of spandex and use that as a metaphor for your faith. Can you share that story with my listeners?
1: Yeah, sure. In college, I was part of that 80s, what people would call hairband movement. So I had this band in college and you know we wore the clothes of the time. And so I purchased most of my clothes at women's clothing stores in malls in New Jersey and still have this sort of pair of pants. And not long ago, you know, I said, I'm in pretty good shape. I still hold myself together. I can probably fit into those, which was a, a big mistake. And so I was like struggling to Get myself into what I describe as the pink sausage casings or pale blue sausage casings and realize I can barely get I'm not gonna be able to get out of these myself. And for me, you know,
0: my wife That's how I feel every day.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's right, exactly. My (laughs) wife and kids came in, thought maybe I was having a heart episode and I was just trapped in my own slacks. And so they, you know, we got me out of there. But I thought of that idea that religion for me over the past couple of decades of my life has really been that. It's this thing that I grew up in that fit at the time, but no longer can accommodate uh, where I am right now. And it's okay that I have to be willing to outgrow some things that were very dear to me.
0: Switching gears for a minute, it seems like faith and consent should be pretty just linked in so much of the scripture. And in so many sermons, we are told that we have to open our hearts to accept God. And this is not just true of Christianity, but of many faiths. And yet so many church leaders and ministers seem to use fear as a tool to convert and control people, can fear drive true faith?
1: I mean fear is antithetical to to what the Christian faith is to my understanding of the message of Jesus And you know that is actually the most common command in all scriptures do not fear and yet what we see in especially in American Christianity, Is this religion that is designed around needing an adversary, requiring an enemy who's always coming to get you and always needing protection and pushing every button in us that naturally is fearful of the need for sustenance or protection? And so I think when you talk about politics and what Trump did, actually, is say, I'm going to lean into every fear trigger that the religious right has made a living wielding.
0: Days before the midterm elections, President Trump released two videos to try to convince voters to cast their ballots for Republican candidates. One is only on Twitter. The other is running on TV. Both are designed to stoke fear, but in very different ways, and they reveal the GOP's two-pronged election strategy. The latest one was posted and pinned to the top of Trump's Twitter account, a platform that the president regularly uses to provoke controversy. It stokes racist fears and carries an inflammatory message that falsely links crime and immigration.
1: And when you get people in that state, I always say no one is at their best when they're terrified. And so we've got millions of people who are professing faith in a God that they are terrified of. And not only that, they're terrified that they, if they love the wrong people or if they approve of the wrong people, then that God is going to be angry with them. And that's a powerful tool. It's almost impossible for me to try and argue with someone else's conception of God that they've had for years. But usually the message I have for them is, God doesn't just want peace for these people, but this is going to release you. if you, you, you have nothing to fear about the people around you.
0: My mom used to say, fear and love cannot live in the same house. And I love that so much. You write that hell, which has been a cornerstone of that fear, is incompatible with a loving God. Can you explain that and talk a bit about what that means for modern faith communities?
1: When you talk about fear, and that's ultimately where it all coalesces, this idea that if I get it wrong and piss off God, that I'm going to be punished for eternity. And for me, just on a fundamental level, the idea of a God who you could get so angry that you were beyond the forgiveness of that God, well, it runs counter to the character of any God, you know, for God to be divine or, or worthy of reverence and worship, that God has to transcend our ideas of forgiveness and love and acceptance. So how can we ever say that someone is going to reach a point where God is exhausted by them enough to damage them in that way, to, to punish them in that way? And so I meet people all the time, and that is still in the back of their minds. They're motivated by that desire to not be punished. And for me, there's a part you know, message in the Gospels where Jesus is telling someone, you need to forgive someone relentlessly. Every time they ask you, you need to forgive them. And then so what the idea of hell says is God is not going to live up to that standard, though. God is going to reach a point where you are irredeemable. And I simply don't find that something I could ever believe in or preach. And so I, I speak the opposite.
0: And we're still in the middle of a pandemic. And I feel like this pandemic has made certain things undeniable. What has COVID-19 revealed about Christianity in America. That is undeniable.
1: It's revealed the, the the racism embedded in evangelical Christianity. I've come to realize that evangelical Christianity was built on a lie, on the myth that God is a white, cisgender, heterosexual Christian man who was born in America and votes Republican. This idea, I think it's exposed that idea that that God is a white man and therefore everyone else who doesn't fit that is somehow needing to earn the approval. And so that's what's been undeniable. It's that deeply embedded racism and misogyny that politically or a religious figure has been able to manipulate to such a degree that we're where we are in the pandemic. I, I, I sincerely believe that all this anti-mask and anti-vax rhetoric from conservative Christians comes from the idea that I need to reinforce the story. And the story is, this is my political party. This is how I vote. This is where God is. And if I deviate from that, I'm somehow outside of the will of God. And I think they'll do anything to hold on to that. So that's been the, I keep thinking people are going to wake up and a lot of them aren't. And I talk to thousands of people doing the work I do, and that's where it meets the road. It's this relational collateral damage of where we are. This is not just about these political parties. This is about our families and our friendships and neighborhoods that are feeling the distance that is growing because of this movement.
0: And the foundation of any faith should be to take care of each other. And when you have an entire community just unwilling to mask up or unwilling to get the vaccination regardless if it helps your sick neighbor or whatever it is, if we are supposed to be in the same image and likeness of Christ, how do they think about that?
1: Yeah, the cognitive dissonance is something that they're not aware of, or they they deny it. Because, you know, for me, when I came on this journey, because I started to look at the way the church was treating LGBTQ people, for example, and said, life is arguing with my theology. I'm going to have to adjust my theology based on what I'm seeing and experiencing. And the more I did that, the more culpable I realized I was in the system and the more grieving I had to do of the racism that I was you know, complicit in. And most people don't want to do that work.
0: Hello, my name is Greg Boyd. I'm a teaching pastor at Wilden Hills Church in Maplewood, Minnesota.
1: Hi, my name is Brian McLaren. I'm a former pastor and author and activist.
0: Hello, I'm Brian Zond, pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And I want to apologize to the African American community in this nation. On behalf of white Christians of European descent, I want to apologize to the African-American community, and I want to ask for their forgiveness. I would like to offer these words of acknowledgement and regret and lament and apology to my African-American neighbors.
1: And so the way they make sense of not wearing a mask is, you know, that they have a story in their heads that says Donald Trump was anointed by God. And everything trickles down from there. But I, I truly believe that most of the people who are anti-vax and anti-mask and anti-Black Lives Matter who claim a faith in Christianity would despise Jesus if he actually showed up in one of their gatherings. And, and that's what you grieve. You, because it isn't, the, it isn't the teachings of Jesus that people are abhorred by and rejecting. It's this bastardized version of Christianity that bears no resemblance to him.
0: There's this painting, I guess, that circled around during the Trump regime, which depicted faith leaders throughout history touching Trump on the shoulder. Yeah, I have it on the wall here. As he, yeah, as he bowed his head in prayer in the Oval Office. And you argue that we should stop calling Trump a Christian. And I agree. And he clearly does not live by Christian ideals and values. So how is it that... That people of faith see Trump as a godly man. How does that happen?
1: Well, I think there are two groups of people who who claim faith and who believe that. One group is completely deluded, so they're only getting the messages from their pastors and from Fox News, and they are in a state of truth deprivation to the point where they they simply don't they don't know objectively they can't see. But then there are another group of people who see him as a tool to get what they want. So they're, they're saying, I know he'll help us overturn Roe v. Wade. I know that he'll shut down the border. So I'm going to use him uh, as an amoral. He's an amoral thing. So I'm going to put my morality on him. We're going to use him and he's going to get us what we want. So part of the group is delusional. The other is opportunistic. And both of them are sad places to be.
0: Where does America first fit into Christian ideology?
1: It's impossible to actually, you know, Christians, they would love to quote John 3.16, and that, you know, begins with, for God so loved the world. And that's the heart of it, right? If God is God-sized, then God loves the planet, and God has no interest in the interests of America, per se. And so America first is just, it's shrinking the world down to, there is not the world, there's only America and everything else. And I think that territorialism, that nationalism, that's the most vile part of this, because it has such a, it's almost contempt for so much of the planet they that they supposedly believe God made. And so that's the thing that really I struggle with as a minister.
0: There's also like just a, an absurd amount of hypocrisy, right? Where it's like, we, no immigrants should be allowed in this country. And now they're like, we've got to rescue the people of Afghanistan who are struggling. It's, you can't, like... Figure out what you believe in and stick to it. Either way, you're either a, a horrible person or a not. There, there's no gray area here.
1: Yeah, I call that hypocrisy moral confusion. I think a couple weeks before the 2016 election, you have Trump saying what he's saying, that Access Hollywood video and all that comes out. And I'm watching that saying, OK, he's going to lose all of the Christian vote. I'm going to use some Tic Tacs just in case I start kissing her. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. Hey, when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab him by the... T- <laughs> I can do anything. And of course, no, he gets 81% of the evangelical vote. And that's that's the thing about it is once you make that deal, once you sign on to that, you have to ride it out. Because now to, to admit who he is and what he has shown you to be, you have to realize, you have to admit that you were wrong. And at the heart of so much of this are simply people who will not say, I got it wrong, I screwed up. And so I have even less respect for those people. I have more of a problem with them. They know better. It's simply their pride that won't allow them to simply look around and say, hey, this many deaths from this virus, is too, it's unacceptable. And I'm not going to fight for this guy. I'm going to reject him, actually. Um, I've got some dear friends who have done that, but the numbers are so small.
0: You uh, mentioned the Access Hollywood tape where you were convinced that once America heard it, that he would lose the white evangelical vote. Boy, that sure did not happen. But it does point to me to a certain level of acceptable misogyny. And I'm wondering why you think so many churches exclude women from leadership. And really, how does excluding us hurt our con- our c- culture?
1: I think when you have the best seat at the table, no matter where you are, you want to retain that. And I think white men have had such a position of power and control in the church that they realize the advantages of it. It's the same instinct that our Republicans are trying to hold on to what they have here because to relinquish power would be to admit your culpability. And so it's been such an easy thing. I, You know, being in the church, that was part of my journey that I would look around and see really qualified women who are working alongside me who were never given the opportunities that I had. I had a woman say to me, John, you know what? I'll never be ordained, but I'm anointed. So I'm qualified. So I'm going to do this work. But the idea that any woman should have to do that, it's been so distasteful to me. And that's one of those places where I began nudging against the church and always tell people, once I started doing that, I started myself on the road to unemployment. And But that's been the better path because when you get out there, you're freed up from that system and you can speak truth into it. And a lot of times ministers don't want to do that. There are a lot of male ministers, pastors who see it, but they cannot disrupt the system that they benefit so much from.
0: You talk about... Just the church of not being horrible. Right. What should churches and faith communities look like in the 21st century in America?
1: One time I I had a minister, a pastor of our church. He he said, let's say our church shuts down this weekend. No notice, we're gone. He said, who would miss us? Who in this neighborhood, who around where we are would miss us? Other than the people who spend their time in this building worshiping. And we realized that not a lot of people would miss us, which told us that we were not participating in the communities where we were. And I think the church, the only thing it can be to be really a reflection of Jesus is participatory and inclusive. You've gotta be with the people where you are and be in deep, real relationships and have the same stake in the world that they do.
0: I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. These words from John's Gospel are at the heart of what church and community mobilisation is trying to do. So what does it mean to have life to the full? It can be summarised as four things. It's emotional well-being and being at peace with ourselves. It's physical well-being, which includes being healthy and having a sustainable livelihood. It's about social well-being, living in peace and harmony with our communities. And it's about spiritual well-being, having a relationship with God, knowing that we are loved and valued as we are.
1: You have to be willing to lose something to have that. What most churches, they aspire to be larger and more successful and to develop essentially what is a franchise in the name of Jesus that they can just reproduce. And we were building a new church, and we had a large church. We were outgrowing it, so we were building another campus in kind of a more low-income section of the city. And then I realized that we were just trying to take our version of Starbucks, really, and bring it to this community when there were already activists there. There were already ministers. There were already communities where, really, they just needed someone to come and work alongside them. And so that's something that the church needs to be about, not being a colonial force.
0: The mega churches are something that I I shot in I shot Insatiable in Georgia, and I had never seen a mega church before, and it is both awe-inspiring and terrifying at the same time. That you would need to build a megachurch that sat 20,000 people to spread the word. And it is, it's like people are franchising their God. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how do we move away from this? How do we untangle hate from faith?
1: The problem with the megachurch is someone said to me, John, we don't have many progressive megachurches. And that's because progressive spirituality and more liberal religion in general wants to just exchange stories. And it's not about, we're going to give you the right way and you're going to come with us. And so that's where that franchise mentality comes from. It's this feeling of, not only do we have God figured out better than every other faith tradition, but every other version of our faith tradition. And so you need to come to this place because that's where God exists. And I think for liberal Christians or progressive people of faith, we're always going to shun that because we just want to be about relationships, community, and diverse experiences of the world, which is going to resist the bureaucracy and the power that comes from those kinds of communities. So the way the way religion is going to, if it's going to be redeemed in, in a public sphere, it's going to have to be the small and the close. It's going to be about that. It's going to be about people whose faces I know, whose lives I'm invested in, who know me. And and that's really um, the only way. That's the way Jesus modeled. There were no mega churches in the Bible for a reason, because it was about people gathering in a home, sharing life together, trying to find meaning.
0: community, breaking bread, drinking from the same cup. How does all of this apply to non-Christians? How can people of other faiths, or no faith at all, help bring American Christianity out of the dark?
1: I tell people all the time that whatever the church is going to look like, it's going to be redeemed or saved. It's going to be saved by non-Christians, by the atheists and agnostics. And, And the work that I do, I'm fortunate because the words I put them out into the world, right? And those words can do whatever work they're going to. So when I'll be at a gathering, there'll be people of every faith. There'll be people who rejected religion a long time ago. And what brings them all together is this love for humanity. And I think that's where religious and non-religious people, that's where we find our commonality. That's where we find the affinity in being human and that empathy for other people. I think that's the unifier because you know the divide in our country, Alyssa, is not just Republican Democrat, that's too small. It's really not liberal and conservative. It's really like a vision divide. It's how we see the world and how we see other people, how we see community. And so the best of religion is always going to invite more people to the table. It's always going to see the people who aren't seen. It's always going to lift the powerless. And then if it doesn't do that, it's a waste of time.
0: Is there progressive faith movement on the left that can counter the mix of faith and hate on the right there
1: is but here's the, the I think the problem is most of it's off the radar because since we don't have large physical communities where progressive people gather what they're doing is people who agree with the things we're talking about they're going and serving in their communities
0: hi everyone reverend kate here i don't know about you but when i watch the evening news i get depressed and sometimes even angry and i am um, reminded again how important it is to support things like healthcare for all and protecting our environment. This time has really brought those things home for me. So during this pandemic, whenever I'm feeling powerless, I try to do something that reminds me that I do have a voice and I do have a vote. So today I am writing postcards, reminding other people to vote, uh, by November 3rd. We really need to participate in our democratic process more now than ever.
1: They're part of, of groups that are doing work that is off the radar of the church. They're not counted in the idea of church. And so that's happening, but it is, um, it's one of those things we're going to have to find a couple. I call it having sort of the community of the convinced that we sort of create these moments where we're, we're doing something beautiful together so that other people can see it because they see the mega churches they see the mega christianity they see those big rallies and they don't realize there's an army of people religious and non-religious people who say I want to live better than that I want to be about something bigger but it's really difficult to get all those people marshaled and around one cause or one one experience
0: and also i think liberal and liberals of faith are are completely aware that each community needs its own Thing It is not just one blanket thing. And so everyone is sort of fighting different demons and organizing against those demons, whether it be misogyny or racism or xenophobia or the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated, which is so crazy to me. What do you say to people who resist COVID vaccines because they believe that their faith will protect them?
1: Well, the ironic thing is, every Christian who says, "You know, I trust God, not science," right, for not getting vaccinated, but if they have trouble breathing, what's going to happen is they're going to go to the, they're going to call the hospital, not the church. So all of a sudden, then science, when it's costly, then when they're really in the throes of suffering, then then science is okay. And I think the other part about it is, I, I tell people, if you're pro life, that should mean that you're for humanity. I take that phrase "for life" and say should be interchangeable with for humanity. Is it for humanity to willingly allow other people to get sick and die? And Jesus is known as the great physician. He's a healer. He's the lover of people. There's a disconnect between that idea and you saying, I refuse to do everything I can to keep people well.
0: It really is amazing, the disconnect. Do you think that there is a spiritual obligation for Christians to support universal vaccinations around the world? I think
1: the biggest source of, I don't want to say disillusionment because I knew it was there, but the the biggest source of grief has been the refusal of Christians to respond with the best of themselves during this whole pandemic.
0: On Monday, two California churches
1: sought an emergency injunction with the U.S. Supreme Court to halt the state's threat of criminal penalties. No one should have up to a year in prison hanging over their head simply for attending
0: a place of worship. California has some of the strictest policies leveled against churches and
1: gatherings imposed to combat the spread of the coronavirus. The churches claim that Governor Gavin Newsom's executive order, which threatens jail time and a thousand dollar a day fine,
0: violates the Constitution's freedom of religion. It is heartbreaking. My heart is broken.
1: Yeah, because this doesn't happen, Alyssa, without Christians refusing to help. In other words, we don't have this, this scale of death. and We don't have this prolonged shutdown without people of faith contributing heavily to what's happening. And it's inexplicable other than that is the cost of mass delusion. You will do anything to hold on to the power and the control
0: it really is the most heartbreaking part of all of this for me because I think I was raised. I believe that there's goodness in everybody and that when things are scary or hard, that's when people rise to the occasion to help their neighbor, to take care of one another and to see this disrespect and this horrible uh, and they're digging their heels in. And it makes no sense to me that they think that their faith is going to save them, especially, you know, I saw a meme a couple of weeks ago. OK, so your faith is going to save you from the pandemic, but you still want your Second Amendment right. Your faith is not going to save you if there's gun violence. It's just the hypocrisy, the constant, what did you call it? The moral confusion. I think that's a great term, the moral confusion. And that's the
1: question too, Alyssa. They don't even know what they're fighting against or for anymore because those things are at odds. What is that fight about? What are you protesting against? And they can't verbalize it. They're just angry.
0: Yeah. And they go, well, it's not FDA approved. And then you say, okay, God forbid you get sick and you go into the hospital and you're treated by some something, some medicine, that's not FDA approved for the treatment of COVID. We've never gone through this before. So you're going to say, no, no, because this medicine is not FDA approved for this. You're going to say, no, you're not going to let them. So it's just, it never ends. And the hardest part, and believe me, I had COVID. I was sick, 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 sick. The hardest part about the last 2 years has been looking at people and saying wow people fucking suck
1: yeah and it's saying it's it's not only do they suck but they're almost proud of their
0: cruelty yeah they're proud of sucking and
1: yeah at the yeah, exactly right. The, the the we suck movement is like really big. And see, that's what you you ask yourself and people ask me all the time, how do I work with that? This isn't 10 or 20 years ago. I know you've been really magnanimous with some of the Republican leaders and tried at times to reach out to them, and it's been amazing to see. But I also realized they're not, you cannot work with someone who is not rooted in reality. And so I think that's so many people are saying. I don't know what to do with my mom anymore. I don't know what to do with my best friend because it's almost like I'm not talking to a rational human being. And so that moral confusion doesn't just affect them. It affects the people who they're hurting and it affects the relationships that they're a part of.
0: And the community and their state and then the globe. We're more interconnected than we've ever been before. So their movement of being, what do you call it, the we suck movement (laughs) is affecting people throughout the globe. And I want to know what you think happens to churches if they don't evolve. Do you think that they'll be able to remain relevant? Do you think there's always going to be a group of people who just suck?
1: I think what you're going to see is what you're seeing now is that these conservative churches are still shrinking historically, but they're growing in comparison to progressive and liberal communities because those people are finally saying, you know what, if I have to be associated with this toxic evil thing, I'm just going to check out of organized religion altogether. And now they're separating into their different worlds. So I don't think the church is ever going to be what it could be, it's going to be an expression of spirituality that is going to happen in smaller ways, less visible ways. And that's the the beauty of the work I get to do. I get to say, here's what I believe, here's what I stand for. And people who are asking the same questions and feeling the same prompts, they can connect to me there. I think that's what's going to happen. We're going to have to do that work outside, spiritual work outside of the geographic or physical church.
0: And the question I always ask my guests last is what gives you hope.
1: I think the the way that I have seen my story change, the way that I have evolved over 30 years, I was with a group of Christian moms of LGBTQ Christians, LGBTQ children. And this one woman was telling the story of her daughter coming out. And she said, John, when my daughter came out to me, it started the clock on my idea of her being gay. She said, "But my daughter's clock had started 15 years earlier because she knew, so she'd already processed the theology and asked the questions and wrestled with all the guilt." She said, "I had to let my clock start to catch up with hers, but she was evolving." And I think my story or a story like that gives me hope that people who are in a place right now where we think they're unreachable, maybe they're just in a process of evolution. Maybe they're going to get there, but not at the speed we hope. And so I get hope. I find hope in the just the idea that we can evolve and change, and that I find hope in people who are living sacrificially, beautifully, despite these circumstances.
0: Well, John Pavlovitz, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast.
1: I'm grateful for your time. Thank you so much, Alison. For me, being a progressive Christian means that I'm sort of always in this tension of fighting for the church and with the church. And and when you have issues like we have with immigration or with survivors of sexual assault, um, with racism, you have an opportunity to step into those, but it's really difficult to to weed through that tension. And what Vote Common Good allows me to do is have a really natural space to say, this is my heart, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, and yet these are the things that I will not uh, settle on. These are my non-negotiables.
0: Faith is complicated. I know that for so many, faith is armor. For others, it's respite, a loving embrace, a way to feel less lonely. But too many of us, far too many, are using faith as a weapon against the very creation they believe their loving God created. Why is it that so many people who are the loudest about their Christianity are the least Christ-like? How can they get from the Jesus of the Bible to hating people because of their gender, their sexuality, their identity? And how did they let politicians of bad faith manipulate them so much into thinking faith is a political issue? It breaks my heart. We speak of faith as a calling. People are called to the church, to ordination, to religious community. Part of that calling has to be love. And not the fake, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin. When you use that to invalidate core parts of any human, when you are called to love from a place of love, the hate cannot exist there hate in the name of god is so damaging so many parts of the most important parts of who we are as americans and as humans so please 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 remember that god is love and stop being jerks